Blog Talk Radio. We have here Suspense Radio Inside Edition. Today is November the 19th, 2016. I am your host, John Robb. I would like to thank you all for listening, however, wherever, and whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you a part here of Suspense Radio and all the shows, which include the Story Blender, Crime and Science Radio, Beyond the Cover, and Inside Edition. We got three great guests today. We're waiting for our first one to call in. Uh, he's been on the show before. His latest book is called Block Sale. It's Rich uh, Zradnik, then followed by Mark Edwards and Matthew Fitzsimmons will round out the show today. This is scheduled to be our last show of the year where we normally take December off, and since we have so many other shows, we can kind of move them all around. Uh, but we normally take December off and kind of regroup for the next year, which is what we are planning to do again this year, and since next week is Thanksgiving, um, this could be our last show, but we might squeeze in one more show uh, with a couple of guests that we're trying to get in. Very big names, I might add. Um, not going to tell you who yet until I can confirm it. But to see if maybe we can do something around uh, the uh, middle of December. So <laughs> we'll have to wait and see on that one. The other thing I want to make sure everybody knows is our if you're listening to it the show now or before November 22nd, email us your best of books for 2016 in the categories of mystery and thriller, suspense, cozy, YA, true crime, um, historical fiction, and so on, and mail us your best books of the year so we can kind of go through and get all those votes together and decide who our best books of the year are going to be in the December issue, along with who is going to win the Crimson Scribe Award, which is given to one author, one book uh, only. That's the highest honor we can give here at the magazine to somebody. Last year it was Kelly Armstrong. In the past, Tess Gerritsen has won um, MJ Rose. So, uh, And I know Terry Hayes for I Am Pilgrim was another book. So those are the, some of the past winners that we've had here on uh, Suspense Magazine. So make sure, if you're listening to this before November 22nd, to send in your votes to editor at suspensemagazine.com, and we will you know, tally up all those votes and get them into December issue. Also, and I do have a little bit of a cold. just got back from Japan. I don't know why I have a cold, but I think just because the uh, weather outside here is so dry, and it's just making my allergies go crazy. But the other thing I want to let you know is if you want to email any of our hosts, uh, Stephen James or Crime and Science Radio or uh, Beyond the Cover myself, you just have to email radio at suspensemagazine.com. Put in the subject line, you know, what you want to talk about, you know, ask your question. I'll send it over to them, and, you know, they'll answer you back directly. We've had a couple 
you know, we've had some emails sent out where people, are, of course, want more clarification for Crime and Science Radio. I mean, that's a very in-depth show. If you haven't heard it, I mean, they have some industry experts from all over to give you the real idea of what it's like to work in CSI and forensics and, and different types of things. Not what you see on TV, but what it's actually like to read because it's not all fun and games. It's not all computerized and wonderful technology and all that stuff. It's a lot, a lot of hard work. And I think that we get caught up too much in seeing just what we see on TV and go, oh, well, you know, that must be what it is. And it's like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not what it is. Come in January and maybe before, we are revamping the website, and it is going to be much different than what you see now. We are basically going to be um, – Everything is going to be out there. You're going to see all the reviews. You're going to see everything um, out there. It's going to be much bigger, much better. Uh, so we're kind of just taking it from where it is and blowing it up, and then it's just going to be like shrapnel going all over the place. So that's going to be much better, too, to give you um, a better way to kind of find your news and find out about your authors and things like that. I still don't – I'm not sure if Rich is going to make it on. So if he doesn't, you know, I can just sit here and, you know, get everybody up to date on everything that we have happening um, going on. And, you know, there's a lot of new books that are coming out. We're getting a lot of great books in the mail. Of course, we get about 10,000 a year. And, you know, to review – and there's a lot of – just, I mean, we get a lot of just different, different things. I mean, there's so many new authors I see all the time and so many different um, publishers popping up. It's just insane that I haven't seen this many before. And I think it's really great to be able to see all of those, uh, all of those new, you know, authors because, I mean, it is, it's just, um, it's a wonderful time. It's a hard time, I think, to be in writing because there's a lot more competition. But it's also a lot more fun because you can put your stuff out there as long as you've had it edited and you've done the work because that's the hardest part that a lot of people don't do is they don't have their things edited and they don't have their their work looked at by someone other than their mother and that's where you kind of get into to problems, and that's why, you know, you put it out there, and you're like, well, why is my book selling? It's like, well, it hasn't gone through the process. So they, it, people, you know, haven't seen it, um, you know, go through the process of of the editing part where it's been read by different people, and, and this is, you know, the biggest thing that, that we see out there. So while it's a good time, it's also a hard time, and it's a hard time for a lot of authors to be seen over top of everybody else because there is so much stuff out there. Um, one book that I'm reading now, and hopefully it's going to be done, um, going to have the review out, but it's out on December the 6th, and I've not, I've not read one of his yet, but I've read Mark Greeny before, but I've not read his Tom Clancy book, and it's called True Faith and Allegiance. So I'm curious to kind of see how that is because I've read some Clancy in the past, but I haven't read any since he's passed away with uh, Grant or Mark writing his uh, writing his new storylines. So I'm curious to see how that is, um, how that's done. 
see how Mark kind of does it. We've had Mark on before, and he's, you know, talked about, you know, how he does his stuff. Um, and it is, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you know, when you're having some authors like Jamie Fevrelotti having to do Robert Ludlum, and, you know, uh, now they're doing Vince, Vince Flynn, and um, I saw Sophie Hanna is now doing Agatha Christie. I mean, you have a, you have a lot of big shoes to fill. I don't know if I'm a fan of kind of redoing those things when those authors are, are gone and bringing them back and, and writing them under their name. I mean, I know that it's now become a franchise, but I guess the question is, does it take away from the author's previous work or does it add to it? Because you're going to have, you know, these authors like Mark and Jamie, I mean, and they're wonderful and they write fantastic books. The problem that you have is that they're being compared to who they're writing and whether that's right or wrong, I think that that's what's happening. And I just don't know if it's, uh, you know, I, I just don't know if you're getting the same um, the, the same story that, that you used to get is what I, get, I guess what I'm trying to I don't know if it's the same story. I don't know if you're getting the same feel. So I'm going to try this out. I'm going to see what it's like. Um, but there's some great books out right now, too, that have just come out. And Jack Reacher is out there now with his latest book, Night School. And, of course, you know, the movie Never Go Back, or which I saw got some really bad reviews. I haven't seen it, but... Um, and I'm not sure why. I heard it doesn't really stick to the book that well, and and that's one thing that just irritates me is if you if you're using the source because you like it to make a movie, then why don't you use the source correctly and not take too many liberties? I mean, you said it in a whole new different city. I mean, it's like now, is that because you are getting a tax break from the other city, or you know, like what's the purpose of that? But um, I don't know, but I, I I have to see the movie and decide for myself to see um, you know how it is, and I'm just not going to look at it as the book. I'm just going to look at it as the movie because I think a lot of the times you can't you use the book as a way of saying okay this is the character and this is how it is, but you have to kind of remove yourself from the fact of this is going to be the same exact story that you are now um, you know that that's in the pages, it's just not going to be that way. So that's something that you have to, you know, watch out for too. The other thing, which is um, very interesting, is not only do you see a lot of those things coming out, but now I'm starting to see more and more short stories coming out by different authors enhancing their series, which I find, which I love. I think that's a great thing. Um, and James Rollins just did that with another Sigma Force book. And it's a short story, and it's called Crash and Burn. So it, it's kind of bridging you between, it's kind of giving you that little appetizer that you weren't able to have before, but now with eBooks you are able to have. You're able to get that little appetizer before the next book comes out and kind of bridges you over and, you know, does it hold you? I mean, is it something that you're interested in? Is it something that you like, um, you know, or not? I mean, that's that's the uh, that's the funny thing is that is sometimes it gives you too much information. Sometimes you get a little bit too much. But 
you know, I've seen Lisa Gardner do it, and, you know, uh, Lee Child has done it, and Steve Barry has done it, and now, you know, I see James Rollins do it. And, and I think it's a great way for fans to, you know, stay in touch with the character, not really lose touch, because when there is so many books out there and there is so much stuff going on, you have a tendency to kind of forget um, maybe certain people or certain things and because your attention moves elsewhere. I mean, our attention's being dragged 17 different directions in 30 seconds every day. I mean, we have stuff while we have access to so much more information, we also have access to so much more information. And, you know, our our attention just gets moved in different directions and, and different things. So I think that that's a great way to kind of keep him and keep him around. The other one that I find interesting is Stephanie Meyer, of course. You know, she was the... Um, uh, the bestseller of The Host and Twilight, she kind of did something different called The Chemist. Um, I haven't seen the book yet. I just saw that it came out. I'm not sure. It's gotten some pretty decent reviews here on Amazon. And I think that it's great that she maybe stepped out of her, you know, out of a different zone and wrote something else. Um, so that kind of intrigued me to kind of see how that book was. Uh, let's see who else we got. I mean, we got David Baldacci, of course, No Man's Land. Um, Michael Conley with The Wrong Side of Goodbye. I mean, that's always, you know, Michael Conley's always solid. You always know that. Clive Cussler, well, his franchise put out another book, Odessa Sea. It's a Dirk Pitt novel, and that means his son wrote it. Um, then Patricia Cornwell's come out with a new Scarpetta novel, Chaos. Uh, hopefully, you know, sh- this starts going well. Um, I see a lot of reviews that, you know, she has to kind of upgrade her character and kind of do some different things. But, you know, she Patricia is one of those authors that is just um, solid in every way. When when you pick it up, you, you kind of know what you're going to get, and and it's just uh, it's fascinating to, to kind of see, you know, how far Kay's come and how far Patricia's come uh, with her writing. I mean. You know, Kay Scarpetta is one of those authors that is just, uh, or no, Kay Scarpetta is one of those characters that, I mean, you could just, it's just there all the time. You just, you just kind of know. Now, we also interviewed Robert um, Masello on Tuesday for Beyond the Cover, and the Jekyll Revelation is his latest book, and Robert has, I mean, some really great books. And there's definitely one that you want to check out is the Jekyll Revelation. And it's interesting because he didn't start out writing historical fiction. It kind of came that way after a while. And so it's really cool to kind of see how someone transformed themselves into this now fantastic historical thriller writer and didn't really start off that way. But if you haven't read Robert's stuff, you know, pick up any of – any of his books. I would suggest one of the four, of course, The Jekyll Revelation, along with Einstein Prophecy, The Romanov Cross, or The Medusa uh, Amulet is the other one. And I would suggest picking up definitely one of them and just starting it off and just seeing where you, where, you know, where it takes you. And, and I think you'll be very, very surprised and very happy that you did it. And you'll just be like, well, you got a new author. Um, you can also check out his interview that we had with him too. So make sure that you, you know, make sure you check that out. That was on the show beyond the cover with Jeff and I, we had him on his fascinating guy. 
Um, let's see who else is new. I'm just going here through the new list because I wasn't really prepared to do this. Um, Gresham has a new one out, of course. The Whistler got some good uh, got some good ratings on there. It looks like my good old buddy here, Dan Brown, is bringing out a new uh, Robert Langdon book. Not really sure why. Um, the last two I don't think very well. And, you know, the Inferno movie is not getting good reviews at all. But this one is called Origin. Looks like it comes out sometime next year. Oh, comes out in September 2017, and they're already talking about it. Uh, maybe he should do some re-race on that first before we put it out. Uh, let's see what else we got. Mary Higgins Clark, of course, always great. Harlan Coburn just put his new one out home. Uh, you always know what you get with Harlan. Uh, Alexandra Sokoloff, Bitter Moon. Uh, we were supposed to interview Alexandra today, but she is in Iceland, and so she had to cancel her uh, interview. But we're going to get her on. That's uh, Hopefully we can get her on here sometime soon. Uh, of course, Preston Child with the Obsidian Chamber. Uh, his stuff is out. Um, looks like Lisa Gardner put out, is putting out a... Um, Let's see, what the hell is she doing here? Oh, she's putting out another short story for Dee Dee Warren. Look at that, see? So we just talked about that. So that's going to be a little short story coming out. It's called The Fourth Man, and it looks like that book is going to come out, well, if my internet works, in January. So it's a, it's a short story. It's a short Dee Dee Warren story, which is really good. Um And that's going to be followed with Right Behind You. Tammy Hogue's got one coming out called The Boy and Lisa Jackson, You Will Pay. So all your favorites um, have books coming out. And you got a lot to choose from. you got a lot going on here. So there's no reason to say, oh, I don't know what to read, I don't know what to read, because it's all sitting right in front of you. Um, so there's no reason to not say, I have nothing to read, I have nothing to read. You're just not paying attention if that's what you're saying. The uh, one thing I were going to say is that when you're looking here at the best of for coming up for next year, you know, these are books, when we put reviews and things in the magazine, these are called not just reviews really much, they're called recommendations. And the reason why we call them recommendations is because maybe you don't know, but we don't write a bad review. Okay, if we can't write a review on a book because it we don't find it, you know, uh extremely good or we, we or whatever. We will just not um we just won't review it. And we'll tell the author that. We'll say, hey, you know what, we're just we just can't review this book and we'll tell them the reasons why. But we don't feel that it's our place to go out and, you know, trash somebody's work. And there are some people who who actually find that as a badge of honor and I not a big fan of that, um, saying, oh, I trash somebody's work because it makes me look more credible. I think it makes you look like an idiot, but, you know, that's just what I think. Um, you know, you can either do it or not. I mean, it's easy to sit back and criticize. It's harder to do. And if you're not going to write and you're just literally going to sit back and just criticize people's work, you know, I, I kind of find you a little deplorable. Um, I guess I shouldn't use that word. I guess that word's been used the wrong way before. 
but I kind of think that you uh, are. I don't think you're doing anybody uh, a disserv. I mean, a good service. Um, by saying how much you like to trash other people's work, and how much you like to, uh, you know, find that that, like I said, like that, that's credible. So that's one thing that we put in the magazine is we will not put, you know, bad, I don't want to say bad, we won't put bad reviews. So these are pretty much recommendations. If you see it in the magazine, you know that it's one that you should probably look up. It looks like, I emailed Rich, it looked like he's not going to make it. So that's okay. Um, We'll try to get him on again. I mean, sometimes these things happen and we've had some, you know, uh, you know, things happen and people can't make it, and so hopefully everything's okay uh, with him. If you haven't seen the last issue, let's just kind of look at the last issue of the magazine, which we just put out not too long ago. And of course, if you want a copy of it, just let me know and I'll send it over to you. But we had some, uh, we've had a, we had a lot of uh, interviews in this one, uh, including Sean McFate, uh, Jonas Saul. If you don't know Jonas Saul, you got to check out his stuff. Uh, Richard Shizmar, Blake Crouch, Sophie Hanna, Linda Castile, and Craig Johnson were all in this. So you got a big, unique experience from all of those people uh, that are in this magazine. And, you know, you got them from the horror down to the Western uh, thrillers and, and the suspense. I mean, you got you all over the place. Uh, of course, Doug Lyle writes his latest forensic column uh, and it's the Q&A can my female character cause her pregnancy to become stone baby by sheer will now that's a very interesting topic now that's something that I've never really I guess looked at before <laughs> I, you know I, I, I would never have thought to maybe ask that question uh, it's kind of different um, a stone baby now I know what a stoned baby is, but I don't know what a stone baby. I guess, um, I guess you're willing it to just be, um, oh, stillborn at that point. Which I don't know why you want to think about doing that. But you know, I guess can they do it out of sheer will? So you know, that's part of the forensics files that you're going to get. So when you're going that deep into different <laughs> into different discussions, you know that Doug's going to answer any questions. And of course, you can always find him on his website at dplylemd.com, and he's he loves to love to answer questions uh, from authors that are stuck, just to make sure that you get things correct. Um, we also have Joe Clifford here is on the craft corner for this month, along with uh, Christina Hogue. It's a special preview of her book, Skin of Tattoos. We have an excerpt in there for that. Uh, like I said, Sean McFate and his latest book, uh, Shadow War, got a great little uh, article in there about that and, and his writing. Oh, let's see what else we got in here. Uh, we got so many reviews, uh, just more and more and more, uh, like I said, recommendations that you could even think of and shake a fist at. I don't know, is it 20 pages now of uh, of book reviews in there? I'm just going through the magazine right now myself as I'm sitting on the phone. Uh, we also have a couple movies that were in there that were pretty good. Uh, I'm going to go see Fantastic Beast tonight. I hope that is fascinating. Shannon and I are going to go check that out. Uh, you know, just more of the Harry Potter world. Uh, 
to kind of see how that was. I'm not sure about exactly what the movie is about, but I do know that it should be pretty fascinating. It's got some really good reviews, which I'm pretty happy about. Um, and we're going to go to one of those theaters where you do like a dinner and a movie, and you eat while you're in the theater, which um, which I think is great. It's, it's actually a really good experience. I thought it was going to be distracting, but it's not. And the food is actually really good. And it's not overpriced. It's just normal, regular food that you get at Studio Movie Grill. So if you got one close to you, I would recommend going and trying it out. You know, it might not be for you. I mean, I guess it's just not for everybody. But um, yeah, you might want to. You know, you might want to go check that out. The other thing that let me tell you about is, you know, here's some uh, here's some of the ads that you will see in the book, and we have some of these from Riveting. It's called Riveting Reads, and it's by um, FSGBooks.com, and it's Stephen Price by Gaslight, which is a novel, and Louise Doherty Black Water. So you want to go check out those two books again by Gaslight, Stephen Price, and Louise Doherty, uh, Doherty or Doherty Black Water, and again that's FSGBooks.com. You can go check out all their work, and we suggest you go do that. Kensington Books, of course, they're the ones who sponsor the show for the year, and they've gotten some fabulous – they're getting into the cozies big time. Berkeley Crime kind of knocked their cozies down. Kensington kind of brought their cozies up. These are, you know, make your September suspenseful, but you can really make it any time. And, and, it, and, it, and it fit along with, with the theme a little bit, Death of a Pumpkin Carver and Candy Corn Murder, Death Among the Doilies, Death by Pumpkin Spice, you know, it's those great cozy books that you can get. So make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for their stuff. Mike Napa, uh, another great author, his latest book, The Raven, is coming out to some wonderful reviews. Calls it a thrill ride. Tosca Lee and Annabelle Lee got some also wonderful uh, reviews. So make sure that you visit bakerpublishinggroup.com and check out Mike Napa's stuff. Uh, it's N-A-P-P-A. You know, go on Amazon, look at his stuff, see what you think of it. But, you know, go check it out and uh, and see what you think because he's got some wonderful work there too. Also, Lynette Easton, her latest books, Without Warning and Always Watching, you can get caught up in the action, danger, and romance. So she is a very strong female character. It's another book by Baker Publishing. It's from Lynette Easton. It's called Without Warning and Always Watching. Again, go to LynetteEaston.com and go check out her work. We are going to take a short break. Then we're going to be right back with our next guest, Mark Edwards, very excited to talk to Mark and what he has coming out. So in the meantime, take a listen to this, and we will be right back. Oh, 
Welcome back, everybody, after the break. Again, we want to thank you all for joining us here again on Suspense Radio. However, wherever and whenever you listen to the show, it's great to have you on. We're sorry that Rich Zadrick was not able to get on the show, but we are very, very happy that we're able to get all the way over here across the pond from England, um, author Mark Edwards and his latest book, The Devil's Work, which is a standalone outside of his normal series, uh, or not outside of his normal series, but outside of um, his books uh, with Louise Voss. So, Mark, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. I'm, it's very cold in England today, and I'm sitting here in my office shivering. I'm actually shivering where it's so cold. <laughs> I think there's a draft coming through the window. So if you hear my teeth chattering, it's, uh, it's because it's, it's almost zero degrees here, so... I guess it's a warmer way you are in California. <laughs> it is. It's, it's going to be about 70 today. Um, that's uh, Fahrenheit. So it's almost zero degrees Celsius where you are? Yeah, yeah, a little bit more than that, but there's a frost, and it's, yeah, it's cold, very wow. cold. So you're outside yeah. of London. Are you more in the northern part of England, or is, it, is that the London I'm, area? I'm in the Midlands, um, near Birmingham, okay. uh, place okay. called Wolverhampton. So, yeah, right okay. in the middle of the country. Well, the when the island. show's over, I'll be able to at least catch the second half of my Tottenham team play um, because they're start, <laughs> they just started their game now. So I'll, I'll be curious to see how cold it is when, when I check it out on TV because uh, I think it starts yeah. – I think, I think the game is on. I think it just started now. So it will be cool to see. Uh, I didn't yeah. think it was going to be that – you know, you guys had some hot weather and all of a sudden you just kind of changed it. So, so much for – you know, global warming in England, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's, um, yeah, like I was saying, I've, I've almost got, I've all, I can almost see my own breath in this office. I think I need to fix my heating. <laughs> no. Well, you know what? Yeah. That's a good lead-in because that's probably the devil's work doing that over there. So exactly, yeah. let's and just it, jump it right in here. Yeah, so let's maybe jump it, right in here. To, to the book and just kind of let us know what you got going on in your latest in your latest book. Yeah, so The Devil's Work is it's a psychological thriller and it's set in the office from hell. So um, I decided I wanted to write a book set in a workplace, in an office, because, I mean, I've worked in offices all my life. And it seems, it seems to me a, a setting, a good setting for a thriller that hasn't been done very much. Um, so it's about a, a young woman in her early 30s who returns to work after being on maternity leave, raising her daughter for, well, she's been off work for four years. And um, she starts work in this publishing office. It's like her dream job, and she's really excited about it. And then from day one, all this weird, creepy stuff starts happening to her in the office and she has to kind of work out whether she's is she just being paranoid are there people in the office who are out to get her um and there's also sections of the novel set in her university days and she was at college with this she was involved with this woman and her boyfriend and they had this very weird relationship and something happened that you find out later in the book that um that has repercussions and ties into what's happening to her now. So it's uh, it's quite a com- it was quite a complex novel to write actually to plot out because I had the two timelines going on and I had to 
to um, to make it all work together. Um, and and the other challenge, I guess, is is setting, which is a lot of my books are set in very ordinary, I guess, mundane settings, and but with with ordinary people with weird, creepy, scary things happening to them. Mm-hmm. Well, what that so, does is that it, it gives you it gives the reader that sense that you know, that could happen to them in that area because it is just a mundane, you know, no supernatural kind of area or whatnot. It's just a normal place where people go every day and have to go to work and have to do their job. So it does lead, you know, the reader to be able to kind of say, wow, you know, this is kind of, you know, this can kind of happen anywhere. And when they're reading that book, they can kind of sense that as they're going along, uh, kind of like, you know, I always mention the movie Halloween because it was just a normal city, normal neighborhood that you see all over the world, and all of a sudden these terrible things happen. It wasn't some odd, different place that you're like, well, I'm never going to be there and see anything like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's why um, domestic noir or domestic suspense, as it's called, is so popular at the moment with things like The Girl on the Train and Gone Girl. They're, they're things that people can really identify with. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to do as well. I'm, I'm taking people who are in very um, recognisable, relatable situations. And it's, and it's something that I get. I get a lot of emails from readers and messages from readers saying that that's why they like the books, because they can, they can see themselves, they can recognise themselves in the stories and imagining it happening to them. Um, mm-hmm. So one of my book, one of my previous books, The Magpies, was set was about neighbours from hell, um, and it was it was set in a in an apartment with this this young couple just kind of starting out in life, just bought their first place together, and all these terrifying things start to happen to them. Um, thing and there's nothing supernatural or or um, or kind of really out there in the books. They're, they're things that can really happen. And a lot of the things in that book actually did happen to me. Similarly with oh. The Devil's Work, it was kind of based on my own experiences of, of work and and my wife as well, because we met at work and um, she returned to work after being on um, maternity leave when we had our first, our first daughter. Um, and I saw the way that she kind of, suffered from the way that management and her and her her staff were treating her and so I take things like that very ordinary kind of things and then think well what's the how can I make this really dark and really really scary <laughs> right it's, it's how quite, can you take a normal enjoyable. situation and, and scare the hell out of people <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and it's fun <laughs> it's it fun is to write that stuff because the pleasure in it I guess is you take you take a character and then you you make them suffer, and then you make them suffer more, and then you make them suffer a bit more. You just have to keep piling hell on them, and and uh, <laughs> until, Poor Sophie. until they they have to try and get themselves out of this this situation. And one of the joys of psychological thrillers, as well, is that you kind of there's always this kind of suspicion that maybe the character's just being paranoid, or they they're imagining things, or they're bringing it on themselves or um and and um or what's in their what's in their backstory what is it about them that's kind of making all these these things happen and how are they gonna how are they gonna deal with it right so um 
just to mention well, give us a little, well, give us a little bit of, of background, you know, why Sophie? Why, why was she the right character to kind of be the lead in this story for you? Well, so this was the first time that I'd written a book solely from a, a female point of view, which which I was slightly nervous about, actually, because I, I wasn't sure whether I would get it completely right as a male writer. I've written female characters before, but they've always been like secondary characters. But I just have this, often when, the, when an idea for a book comes to me, it starts off with a scene that I imagine in my head. And I had this, and I just, I just saw this, this, woman, this young woman, and it was actually in the backstory part of her starting university and kind of being very nervous. So the way the story started was like, I imagined the, her backstory, her history first, so all the things that happened to her at university. And then I thought about what, what's going to happen years later. So that's why I, um, I chose Sophie, or, what, or why Sophie's the main character, because I, I just came up with this, this young woman um, at college, away from home from the first time, kind of quite unsure of herself and quite, quite a nervous character, who gets kind of taken in by these very charismatic kind of darker characters who, I don't know if you say they lead her astray, but they kind of, um, they lead her to places where she wouldn't have imagined herself going. And so, so there's this, there's this secret in her past that we find out later in the book that has, that has huge repercussions for her. Um, so her best, the friend that she meets at university, um, sorry, I should say college, I'm using British, British English, but the friend that she meets well, gonna, and, and, and I'm gonna, and I'm going to get into that too. I'm going to ask that question okay. later, so go ahead, keep okay. going. Yeah, so she is the granddaughter of the owner of the publishing company where Sophie eventually ends up working. So, so that's, that's the connection between, between Sophie and the, and the workplace. And there's, this, there's this, all this stuff going on in the background of the publisher. Um, the, 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 the guy who runs the company is called Franklin Bird. He's in his 80s. He's still coming into work. And he's, got, he's also got some very dark secrets. And um, I, I suppose that also I wanted to write from a female point of view because well, I, get, I think about 80% of my readers, maybe even more, are women. And I wanted, to, we were talking about wanting to write characters who are familiar to readers. I, right. although, um, although I do get feedback saying that they like, my readers like reading stuff from a male point of view, because there aren't actually that many psychological thrillers or domestic suspense novels that are written from um, the male point of view. Um, I, I, I wanted to write something from a female point of view because it's, I thought it would appeal to my readers and also because it was a challenge. And, and like I said, it was just because this, I just had this character in my head that I wanted to write. Right. And the great compliment, I've had some really great compliments from people saying that they, when they were reading it, they, they kind of forgot that it was written by a man. So I, I must've got, I must've got it right, or at least got something right about, about, about her. So. Yeah. Well, 
And you know, and you brought up an interesting thing because, like you said, you were saying university instead of college. I mean, of course, in the states, you can kind of say both. It's just that I think when people say right. university, they think more of a prestigious college, and when they or prestigious place, okay. when they think college, I guess they don't think of it more as prestigious. But when you're writing okay. the book, and of course, and you know that it's going to be sold over here in the United States, but you're writing yeah. it in kind of some some in, you know for some more British uh, terminology you have in there. Do you get people asking you questions like, hey, you know, like, what does this mean? And then it's like, oh, my gosh, it just uh-huh. means, you know, like if you say a lift, that means an elevator. But some people don't get that. Exactly, do you yeah. find that challenging? Do you find that hard to do? Or do you just write it in your own words and let people figure it out? Okay, well, this is, a, this is an issue that I have. Uh, you, kind of, you kind of hit one of my – it's not – it's one of my one of the things that I worry about because um, mm-hmm. I'm published by Amazon and they basically publish the same version in the UK and the US and Australia and all of the English speaking countries. Um, and my editor is actually in Seattle in America, so um, I have so so when I when I write the books and send them to my American editor. He doesn't understand <laughs> some of the things that I'm talking about. And he'll kind of like put notes in, he'll correct my English, and I have to change it back because yeah. he's changed things that are actually correct in British English that are not. And there are even like words like, we would never say gotten um, in in um, British English. That's an American oh. phrase. And, and, there's, and I get a lot of emails from people in America saying, I really like like this book, but I have no idea what this word meant or this word meant. Like, uh-huh. like skip. Like you put rubbish in a you put rubbish garbage in a skip, which I think is a dumpster in right. in the US. And somebody actually went through chapter one of the Magpies and said she found forty words in one chapter that were different in Britain than they are in America. So there's um, it's, it's you know pre- Peter I mean, James and I. And Peter James and I have talked about that at length, and he used yeah. to actually have to have his books retranslated because it was like, you know, they just they just didn't get it. And so he's like, they retranslated my book so it was more English, it was more <laughs> American words. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I thought, I actually think that's quite a good idea because um, I do worry that it might put some people off if they... But then I, yeah. I think also there are people who like it because it kind of gives it a a certain flavour. A, 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 you don't have to be an Anglophile to, to like it. Um, right. I'd to know if The Girl on the Train, for example, which I know is a huge bestseller over there, whether that was different in the – whether they used American English in the in the American version of that. or, or I, I don't know, but um, – I don't anyway, know. I can't. I don't know that one. I mentioned the girl on the train. I don't know why. It's because it's. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'm just slightly jealous of how many copies it's sold. I guess. Um, <laughs> I uh, think everybody yeah. is and shocked at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so when I was writing the devil's work, I actually found myself using American words. So I was writing elevator instead of lift because I was thinking. Uh, because the previous book, Follow You Home, actually sold more in the US than it did in the UK. And so I was thinking, oh, oh. I'm going to have more Americans this time. Um, maybe I should use some, because obviously everybody, well, one of the things that is happening over here is that, is that 
American English is becoming more and more, is used more commonly. My kids, who are brought up watching YouTube and Netflix and, and, um, and the Disney Channel and whatever, have actually started yeah. using American words. Um, so they'll say mustache instead of mustache, and they'll say zipper instead of zip, and, and they, they use, and I'm always having to correct them, saying, no, that's American, <laughs> this, is the, <laughs> this is the British word, because they're, at, they're naturally starting to use American words. Yeah. Um, so I think in like 10, 20 years' time, it won't be an issue because we'll all be talking American, so I won't have to worry yeah. about it. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> well, we're gonna... not the most intelligent people to, to base your language off of, i got to tell you that, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, so, yeah, it is, it, is a th- it is a thing. It's something that I, that I kind of think about. But then I think if the, if the main character is British... And it's from their point of view. I have to write it in British because otherwise it would seem it wouldn't it would seem fake. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, but then I sometimes will go to write a word and, and have to change, or I'll change it because my editor will come back to me and say nobody will understand what this means. So you've got right. to find an alternative way to say it. So I sometimes I, I sometimes do that. But in general, I do write it British. The Queen's English. <laughs> the Queen's English. Now, yeah. when, no, when you're sitting yeah. there thinking of plots, and, and you, know, you, you like to go dark and you have that psychological aspect to a lot of your books, is there a subject, mm. though, you just won't write about? Is there a subject too dark even for yourself that you just can't put yourself in that position to write? Mm. I... Used to, well, they used to be. I mean, I used to say I would never write about children being harmed, children, but I have done that now. Um, There's stuff in one of the books that we lost about the child abduction, and um, and there's there's some really really dark stuff in Follow You Home um, as well. Um, So I think, I mean, things like like sexual abuse of children is the most grim topic. I don't, I don't think I would ever be able to write about that. Um, right. I think that's probably the only that's probably the only thing that I that I wouldn't that I wouldn't write about. I don't. I sometimes when I was writing Follow Your Home, there were sections in that where I I kind of wrote them and felt. I, I kind of felt not. Dirt is not the right word, but I felt really dark after writing them. And right. quite like I'd actually disturbed myself because because I, I was going to say, does that kind of shock you when you when, does that kind of shock you when you when you write that down? You're like, wow, I can't believe that came out of me because that's like so different than your normal personality. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't shock. I mean, it is completely different to my normal personality, but I know it, it's obviously in there, and I have a taste for dark fiction. I've always liked watching horror movies. I've always liked reading very um, dark stuff, um, and I, I quite like being scared or, or being disturbed by things that I read or watch. Um, have you ever seen the film Under the Skin with um, Scarlett Johansson as a kind of alien? Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a scene in that where there's there's a toddler on a beach where her parents are drown in the sea and the toddler's left on a beach on their own and watching that 
that mm-hmm. stayed with me for, for months. I mean, it, it still stays with me now. Like, if I think about it, it makes me feel really kind of cold and, and, and horrible and kind of like you want to go into the film and, like, save that child. Um, right. But there's still something, there's still a part of me that is drawn to watching and, and, and reading that kind of stuff. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know what it is, but, but um, so I don't shock myself, but I do sometimes disturb myself. Um, again, when I wrote a, um, a book with Louise Boss called Forward Slash, which was about, it's about a serial killer. And I've just written another serial killer novel now. And, and I had to write chapters from the serial killer's point of view. And my publisher, Harper Collins, were, basically came back after we delivered the first draft and said, you need to make it nastier. You need to, you need to make the serial killer chapters much scarier and darker. So, so I did. I kind of really went for it and made it as dark and nasty as I could. And, and kind of to the, almost to the point where I felt, I felt almost kind of ashamed of some of the, some of the horrible stuff I'd come up with. And and it's really that book is really nasty in places to the point where some people have said it's just too disturbing. But a lot of but a lot of readers really love it. They love reading that stuff. Yeah. And um, so um, and now now when you say readers love it, I from what I see is that I always see European writers go a little bit further they took they, they just take that little extra inch further than american writers do in the darkness and the horror maybe that they write is that because you see you know that european readers crave a little bit more of that stuff than american readers do maybe i don't know actually I, maybe um there is definitely a fashion and it's been going on for quite a long time now for for quite dark I mean, serial killer novels are still very popular over here, as well as all the domestic suspense stuff. Um, I don't know whether um, I the only so I, I was saying that I get quite a lot of emails and messages from from readers, and I get them from all over the world. I'd say they're split, but but they're mostly from the UK and the US. And there are certain things that American readers will email me about that British readers aren't so bothered about. One of them is swearing. Um, Americans, or a lot of Americans, don't like bad language in books, which British readers don't really care about. I get a lot of people emailing me saying, I really like this book, but I really wish you hadn't had all the F words and and, right. and so on in um, another one is cruelty to animals. Now I am I'm a vegetarian. Oh, no, you can kill as many people as you want, man, but don't kill a dog exactly. ever. I know, I know. And there, in one of my books, there's a kitten gets killed, and and um, yeah, we got a, a lot of grief. We got a, a lot of grief over that. A serial, a kitten. Yeah, you better bring kitten. the cat back in the next book, some in oh. some supernatural <laughs> way. <laughs> Well, you better make a mention that all of a sudden they they see that cat walking like, wait, I thought that cat died. Nope, that cat lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of one-star reviews on Amazon over that cat. But it, yep. but it was, uh, yeah. And um, and the other thing is sex. You get you get complaints about sex scenes. I get, but then I, I think I get more complaints about the sex scenes from British so people say that British people are prudish, and I think that is that is true because um, I, I get kind of people emailing me or leaving me bad reviews because there was too much there was too much sex, 
And that's, that's the one thing where I think I've actually kind of, I have actually toned down the amount of sex in my books now because I've had so much grief from people about it. Yeah. I kind of, when I go to write one of those scenes, I think, oh, maybe I should just cut away. And <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, I, I mean, so, it is funny to kind of see when you get emails like what fans are, you know, curious about, what are they passionate about, and you almost want to say, that's what you picked out of this whole book, that one little thing. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it yeah. does kind of, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, we're running a little out of time, but do you let those comments affect your writing for the next book, or do you just kind of just let it go and say, eh, it is what it is? Most of it, I don't let it. I don't let it affect me. But like I said, the, the but kind you of, let I, the cat I, thing I, affect you. You ain't killing another cat. I'll tell you that. Well, there is something that's happened to a. Well, oh no, I, Mark! I, I've got I've got a cat that sits to me in my office while I work. That literally sits on my desk with me so sometimes I'll kind of glance over at the cat and think well I know I can't do anything to, to a cat but oh yeah and like I said I love, I love cats I love dogs I've got one of each and uh so sometimes the story demands demands things happening to animals or kids or, or whatever it but the vi- I suppose the violence thing my so I've got um I've also got an editor in the UK, and when she read Follow You Home, there's this really, really, the really disturbing scene in the middle of the book. She said, when she read it, she felt so sick that she had to kind of get off. She was on the train. She had to get off the train to kind of get some air because it affected her so much. And she was saying, you need to tone this down. And I, and I, I, I wouldn't because I thought that the story demanded it. And right. um, so if I, if I think that, I'll tell the story the way that I think that it should be told. And I try not Mm -hmm. to let the feed affect me because I also think that for every one person who emails you to complain about the sex or the swearing, there's probably 99 people who actually like it. It's the silent majority. So, yeah, yeah, you cut, but I know writers who have gone through their books and literally taken out all the swearing. Like self-published writers who publish something on Amazon, then they've had some feedback from people saying oh there's too much swearing in this book and then they go through and they take out all the swearing because they're worried about about the feedback of getting bad reviews because of it so you know if you you, you start i think if you start worrying about how people are going to review the book then you're already going to have a bad book i think you just have to write whatever comes natural however it happens it happens and just let it work itself out i think readers will respect that more than trying to think, it's kind of like giving the answer that you think I want to hear instead of just giving me the answer and letting it happen the way it happens. So yeah, I, I yeah. don't, and you know, yeah. yeah. You end up with something that's sanitized and a bit bland. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, so when I, if there, there are always scenes in my books where I'll write something and think, well, maybe that's a bit, maybe that scene is a bit too out there. Some people aren't going to like that scene. And then right. I actually think, well, that's good. I need to keep that scene because that's the one that people are going to talk about and remember because, yep. I mean, this is my, I always say this to, to like aspiring writers, but this is one of my big tips is put, don't be afraid of, of pushing the envelope of putting something in there that is, that is a bit out there or, or um, mm-hmm. 
the mice seem a bit crazy because they're they're the things that people are going to remember. The worst thing that you can do is be bland and boring, and kind right. of try well, and write. Know, you know what's funny? People thought Hitchcock was crazy for killing his uh, main character in Psycho 30 minutes into the movie, and it turned yeah, out to be genius. Yeah. So those people don't know what they're exactly. talking about all the time either. Yeah, but hey, yeah. Mark, yeah, yeah. we are we have come up to the end of it, man, and I want to thank you so well, much for coming cool. on. It has been it's been fascinating to talk with you and to get more insight. I could keep going for another 30 minutes, but um, again, yeah, your yeah. website, <laughs> markedwardsauthor.com, is where people need That's to go right. to find out more about the devil's work and all your books. Of course, the ones you write with yeah. Louise Voss and all of your standalones. So thank you so much for coming on, man. It has been a pleasure, and we'd you. You know, like to talk to you in the future. Great. Yeah, me too. Thanks very much. So, all right. You have a good one and enjoy. And try to stay warm. Turn the heater on or burn a fire or something, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Mark Edwards. And you want to go visit markedwardsauthor.com for more information on his latest book called The Devil's Work, along with all of his books that he has going on. Like you just listened to Mark. I mean, you got a lot of psychology, a lot of, lot of dark stuff going on in there, a lot of great characters, a lot of great story. Uh, so make sure you pick up his latest book, The Devil's Work, and check out his stuff. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with our last guest, uh, Matthew Fitzsimmons, and we are going to talk about his latest book, Poison Feather. It is the latest in his uh, Gibson Vaughn series. So we will be right back right after this. After the break, uh, again, we would like to thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank Mark Edwards for being on. And now we're going to jump into our next guest. He is author Matthew Fitzsimmons. So this his latest book is called Poison Feather. It is the second book in his Gibson Vaughn series. His first one was called The Short Drop. It's the first time we've talked with Matthew, so we're glad that we were able to connect with him and his publicist, um, and you're able to get a little idea of what he's writing. So let's go ahead and... Say thank you so much for coming on, Matthew. How are you doing today? Great, John. How are you? Thank you for having me on. 
I'm doing good. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. It's great to be able to talk with, you know, somebody for the first time and kind of see, you know, the, the work that's, you know, that, that you've done. And now that we're into book two in your series, why don't you give us a little bit about, uh, you know, not just Poison Feather, but the first book and, and, and tell us what you have going on here in your series. Well, uh, the book features uh, Gibson Vaughn as, as my main character. He's a uh, uh, he's about 28 years old in the first book. He's uh, a colorful sort of guy. He, what, that's, his background is, is complicated. So he's arrested at uh, 16 for hacking a U.S. senator, uh, and actually the U.S. senator that his father works for. And he, he hacks a senator, turns all of the senator's uh, emails and so forth over to the Washington Post, and then gets arrested for his trouble. Um winds up tried for that and at the last minute he gets sent to the marines rather than jail so at 17 he goes into the marines and uh uh winds up uh in uh, the activity which is um uh the marine special forces uh, intelligence gathering arm that was uh sort of upgraded after uh, operation desert shield not i take that not desert shield operation desert eagle uh, which was the 1980 uh, failed operation to rescue the hostages, the Iranian hostages. Um, so he works for the activity for a few years, and we pick him up shortly after he's uh, left the Marines and uh, is trying to lead a normal life. And uh, normal lives are boring and thrillers, so uh, they'll, they'll <laughs> have none of that whatsoever. Right. <laughs> um, and the first book, Short Drop, uh, which came out last uh, December, is about uh, – sort of a, a, a deep dive back into Gibson's past, um, a childhood friend of his uh, who was actually the daughter of that same senator that he was arrested for hacking it has been missing for 10 years and uh, uh, new evidence comes to light uh, in her case and he gets sort of pulled into uh, what is essentially a cold case to sort of look for this friend of his from his childhood. And Poison Feather picks up about six months after that, and it's uh, a little bit of a treasure hunt book. Basically, the premise is that uh, there's a uh, a kind of a, a shady Wall Street fellow named Charles Merrick, who uh, has it was just finishing up an eight-year sentence for defrauding his investors. And about a month before he gets out of prison, he gives a uh, a very ill-advised interview to a, a finance magazine where he kind of egotistically uh, hints uh, that the uh, Justice Department did not, in fact, find all of his money and that he's going to be just fine when he gets out. Um, and so basically it's uh, – you know, he's, everyone has about 30 days to try and find the money before this fellow gets out of prison and disappears forever. Hmm. Now – when you decided, hey, you know what, I, I want to start writing, and you're going to start writing a series, why Gibson Vaughn? What was uh, what was the intrigue to create him? Um, well, you know, I think I think there's, you know, I think when authors create these sort of main characters for thriller series, you know, you, you can sort of go the autobiographical route. You can go the, you know, the, so you have authors who, you know were uh, New York City cops and now write about a New York City cop. And so that there's sort of a, a, a fictionalized extension of who they were in their professional lives. Uh, you have folks who there's a little bit of wish fulfillment who 
you know, create a, you know, who create an alter ego that they, that they identify with and, but they can't quite live that life. And, you know, and, and I think energy goes into it that way. And I kind of went another way, which was, I wrote a book in my twenties. It was very autobiographical. Uh, that did not sell, that was not a very good book, and which kind of killed my interest in writing for a number of years. It was a long time before I came back to writing. Uh, I spent about 12 years teaching English literature at the high school level, which I actually, that was kind of what got me back into writing, was just working with kids every day and, and talking about books and thinking about books as a, for a living got me fired back up. And so when I started to create Gibson Vaughn, I wanted, I knew I wanted him to be as different from myself as possible. Uh, and there are things, there are aspects of him that are similar to me, but um, for the most part, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. Gibson is 28. Uh, I was never in the Marines. I'm not a hacker. I do not, you know, his, his history and my history have no real points in common. And I, I was just excited to create a character sort of organically that I hate that word. You can, you can feel free to hang up on me. So I, if I say the word organically again, just, just, just kill the interview. Um, that, that just, that, that, that fit the kind of story that I wanted to tell. And uh, uh, so I sort of started from the ground up and I was having dinner with a friend of mine. He's actually the, the fellow who the second book is uh, dedicated to uh, Mike Tyner. And uh, he works for uh he's a, he, he he has sort of every security clearance known to mankind and, and, and builds oh. secure networks for uh, for various agencies in the D.C. area. He works for a, a contractor, and he was telling me a story one night about uh, how, uh, you know, there's a documentary about it now, but at the time it wasn't as well known. There was a, there was a virus created called Stuxnet. Are you familiar oh. with that? Does that, does that mean anything to you? I'm not familiar with that. Well, oh. so very, very quickly, it's an amazing story. So, um, you know, the Iranians were building re- uh, reactors uh, you know, 10 years ago, so for, uh, thereabouts. And, um, you know, the, a virus was developed, which neither, which the United States has never taken credit for, which was designed specifically to infect uh, uh, the servers that were in the Iranian nuclear reactors. And we knew which servers were being purchased because we could see where they were buying from. And they were certain manufacturers of a computer server and the virus was designed to infect them. And once it was infected, it would, it, it would instruct the servers to spin up the centrifuge and basically destroy itself. Um, huh. It's the most sophisticated virus that has ever, and then the virus was supposed to dis- destroy itself and disappear, but it didn't do that. And Stuxnet was found in the wild um, in other servers and in other places. And it, it did, you know, a little bit like a little of a Jurassic Park, nature will find a way this virus has survived right. and is now out there. Um, and the interesting thing about it, and this, so this was the part that I really liked, was that the Iranian nuclear reactors are not connected in any way to the internet. I mean, one of the ways that, that secure networks now protect themselves is they're not on the internet. They are not actually hackable. The way that, uh, the way that a lot of uh, 
people are protecting themselves is just get off the internet entirely is that you have standalone right. networks that have no outside access. And so these Iranian reactors, these Iranian nuclear reactors were standalones. You couldn't get to them. You couldn't hack them. You couldn't get into them. So what they did was they put, they put this virus onto uh, thumb drives and then they just started dropping the thumb drives around the nuclear reactor at bus stops in restaurants where they knew that people who worked inside the reactor went and then they waited and they waited for someone to pick it up and walk it back into the office and stick it into their computer out of dumb curiosity to see what it was. And that is how they crashed the Iranian nuclear reactors. And that idea of what's called social engineering, which is, you know, the, 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 the assumption that the weakest part of any network system is the human being, that the computer can be as secure as you want. But if your password is dumb, if you're using one, two, three, four as your password, then, you know, it, it doesn't not. matter how. Right. And, you, and it doesn't matter how sophisticated the system is. Right. If the people are going to not follow protocol, you're doomed. So yeah. that, and so Gibson Vaughn is, I, tr- I liked that idea. And I thought, you know, I've never really seen hacking portrayed accurately. It's always, you know, uh, you know, the swordfish model of, you know, I'm going to hold a gun to your balls and you've got 60 seconds to hack into this bank. And that's just not how, that's not how hacking works. That's not right. at all what it is. So, you know, I, I talking to him, I got this idea of well, what if Gibson was a hacker? What if he was a social engineer? And what if we really made an effort to portray this this new threat honestly and don't cheat and don't do like the movie, you know, the, the, the hyper fast movie hacking that you see? Um, and so that was that. So that was a long way to answer the question of, of how did I come to Gibson Bond, but. But it, it was sort of that was the uh, that was the impetus for it was I just I hadn't seen that character before an authentic hacker. And you know the thing is is that that's a refreshing uh, aspect and approach also to you know bringing a character to light because when you're starting a new series not only do you have to create the main character and you have to start creating all his world around him. But now you have to start finding intricate plots that he is going to fit in, and then it's not going to feel forced. Because from what I see sometimes, is I see people like, okay, I got this really great idea, but I got this really great character, but they don't fit together, and they force it together, and it doesn't really work. And then you kind of, they kind of don't understand why their series isn't really going the way that they want it to go. But when you're taking the approach of, hey, you know what, I got a really great character and then I build a really great plot or vice versa, then you kind of see it work a little bit better together. And, and that's, you can just tell from listening, you know, that's kind of how you started the short drop, and that's how you've kind of gone into Poison Feather. You've kind of gone, you know, that route instead of trying to put in the square peg in the round hole. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, mean, I think, you know, there's the, the one way for a thriller writer to solve that problem, and, you know, Michael Connelly is a great example of this, is, uh, you know, Bosch is a cop, you know, and, it, you know, if your main character is a cop, trouble is going to find him. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just, you know, yeah. where, where you start to have trouble is what I would call the murder she wrote. Uh, hey, don't be making fun of Jessica Fletcher, though. The angel of death well, is right. my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like, would and, you ever but invite can, that woman? Because you know why I love those series? 
is because they're technically not series. They are technically all standalones. Like that's why Law and Order, I believe, went so long, and then it eventually died when they started getting too much into who the people were and getting away from the actual cases. It started making the story not as entertaining. Uh, that's an interesting idea. But when you have Murder, She Wrote, you could jump into Murder, She Wrote in Season 7, Season 4, Season whatever, and just pick an episode, and you don't have to know anything from the past because it's just about that 160 minutes. And that's what made it so intriguing. But you also then have – do you have that that, what I would call that suspension of disbelief that every single place that this woman ever goes – Someone dies. Yeah, something. I mean, yeah, I yeah, just, yeah, you, something you, happens. You, you know, you got, you got like. I mean, I would never invite that woman anywhere. It's like, who? You want to invite Jessica Fletcher to Christmas? Oh hell no! Yeah, because someone <laughs> well, is going to be dead. But it's funny because when you look at when you watch like the first, the very first episode of her story, and you know she's just now writing her first book. But then when you go to like episode four or five. She's already written like three books, so it's like jumped ahead, <laughs> so there's like a big timeline. And then you get into like episode 20, and you know, you have uh, like Rue McCallaghan on there who's on one of her shows, although Murder Takes the Bus. I just know that one. It's one of my favorite. And she's like, oh, that's, you know, that's J.B. Fletcher. She writes wonderful mystery books. Well, then it's obvious she's written more than one, so they kind of fast-forwarded how – but you don't know how many, but you just kind of have an funny. idea that maybe she's in – by the time the series ends, she's written over like 20, but you're just not sure. So that, I think that's kind of how they've done it, just very subtle. You just have to kind of right, right, catch right. that, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, it, but uh, but it, it does speak to your, you know, is how do you, as a series progresses, how do you justify? How I think one of the things that I'm nervous about. I mean, I'm I'm right now. Uh, I have sort of I'm I'm on contract to write. Three. I'm writing three no, right currently, and then uh, I'm on contract. So three more after five. this one, or five? So is it five total, or is it three total? It'll be five total. It'll be five. Total. Okay, five total. Gotcha. Um, you know, and so one one of those questions as you as you're doing it is is that is is how to is exactly that thing is how to keep it fresh, how to yeah. make it how how to make it believable that 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 this level of shenanigans keeps. Uh, circling this guy um, without it start being like, you know, without it just, it, it, it exactly being that thing where you, where you are, um, are uh, sort of, for, as you said, sort of forcing a squ- uh, square peg into a round hole. Right. Right. You want it to come organically. <laughs> oh, look what you did. I see what you did there. I see what I'm I can't hang you. up on myself. <laughs> I do that all the time, well, especially with the yeah. modern phones. I have known to hang up on myself. Um, so go ahead. But now, when you're looking now that you're kind of you know into the poison feather and and book and you start looking now, this is going to be an ongoing series that's going to have no end. So it's not like you're like, hey, I'm doing seven books and that's it. This is going to be as long as stories keep coming and as long as things keep staying fresh. I'm going to continue to keep writing the series, correct? Uh, yes. I mean, I would like to, you know, someone who I, I admire a great deal is like a Dennis Lehane, who who had sort of his, oh, his yeah, uh, the, the Maggie Gennaro, uh, Patrick Kensett series, which was sort of his backbone. And then he 
I think around book four or five wrote in sort of short succession, Mystic River and, and, and Shutter Island, and sort of had these great standalones. So I, if I had, mm-hmm. if I have my druthers, and we don't, you know, I'm very early in my career here, so who knows how it will play out, but I like that idea of being able to take a break and write, write some other things as well and not, I, I don't think that I, I don't think I have the stamina to write, you know, 25 uh, Gibson Vaughn books in succession. I think, I think at some point I would, I would mm. need to take a break and, and uh, recharge by writing something else. Well, but yes, yeah, so you're, but you're reason, right in that. It, yeah. Well, sorry. and the kind of Go the reason ahead. why I ask is because when you start to have a series that has an infinite end and you don't know where it ends, you got to pick out that time when you're like, okay, now is the time to shake shit up. And now I'm going to shake shit up. So right. it's like, does that come Absolutely. in book four? Does that come in book five? It's kind of like, when is that time when I'm going to just like put the whole series on its ears and go bam and switch gears and then go another direction? And I guess, like I said, when you have an infinite end, you kind of have to massage to kind of understand, all right, is it feeling a little bit pressed now I need to do it? So that's a decision that, you know, now if you're like reading, if you're doing seven books, you're like, okay, book three is going to be that way. You know what I mean? So that's kind of right. a challenge Absolutely. that you guys have to think about. And I, and I think that's sort of that, you know, the, the obvious sort of, uh, you know, the, if, if you look at sort of how television thrillers have changed in the last 10 or 15 years, it, what you just described is the lost conundrum and that lost mm-hmm. kind of changed the way that, you know, that, that lost got to season two or three and they went, you know, they famously said, we have no idea what we're doing because we can't, we're not writing to anything. And right. the audience feels Heroes bad, did the same to... thing. What's that? That movie, that, that show Heroes did the same thing. It was almost like yep. they were only going to write one season, but then it got so popular. They were like, Oh, you got to keep going. And they're like, yeah, shit, we don't have anything else. So then everything right. had to be all right. weird. Yeah. Right. And you and and what you're seeing now is with showrunners on TV is, you know, you have Breaking Bad which says we're going to do 5 seasons and that's it. And you have mm-hmm. a you you have much more sort of you have where you didn't used to have this with network. You now have these sort of finite runs that say we're going to do the story is going to be this long and then we're going to be done with it. And that's just that. Um and but it, but with a with a thriller series in, in the books, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Is that the is the way I I mean my solution, and I'm still working on this, is that I'm thinking them in sort of sets of three. Is that at the end of book three, I'm going to shake up things. The book that I'm writing right now, I I've always viewed sort of the first three as a set, as like a trilogy within the larger like a trilogy within a I've, series, yeah. Right. And so like the first three is going to wrap up sort of what I would call the themes of the first three books. I know it's all pretentious to talk themes and thrillers, but when I think about it, I I, I do think about it in those terms. And, you know, know, book four is going to be in a very – Gibson and a number of the other supporting characters are going to be in a very different place than they were in one, two, and three. and then I sort of three see book four, five, and six as being a set, and then I'll see where I, see where I land then. But I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and when you kind of look back at some of the series, and, and you know, I'll just take you know uh, Harry Potter because I'm going to go see Fantastic Beasts tonight. But 
everybody knew that this was only going to be seven books. So they knew that it was leading up to the final climax in book seven. And then, of course, sorry if it's a spoiler alert, but when Dumbledore dies at the end of book six and you kind of see these transformations, you don't know who Snape's going to be and this and that. I think that's what made the series, and, and, they're, and they're great books, but I think that if it was one of those series that was just going to keep going on and they didn't know how it was going to go, I don't know if, I think, I think readers would not have been as intrigued by it. I don't think it would have been as popular as it ended up being because it would have really had no end. It would have just kept going and going and going. And so I think that when you mix things up, like you said, you're kind of doing trilogies within the series, it, le- it gives like a little bit of closure at book three, six, nine, twelve of what you had done in the previous two books, and then you kind of move forward. So it is, you, you still get that sense of climax, like, oh, my God, you know, okay, like book three, something's going to be happening, and then you kind of run it up together, and then book four is kind of like a, you know, it's kind of like a refresh. It's like a refresh start. I uh, 100% agree with you. I agree. I, 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 uh, you know, it, it, it's the, you know, there's only so that's long. That's one reason I'm not a fan of series. Like, I'm not, and then Jeff and I have talked about this a lot on Beyond the Cover, the other show, is that I'm not a really big fan of series series. I'm more of a fan of, I know, I like to know that there's an end because then I like to know that the author is working towards something instead of just writing mm-hmm. another book. And then putting on the back of the cover, this is the most diabolical criminal they've ever seen. And I'm like, yeah, you wrote that the last 22 times. <laughs> All right? So when is that finally going to stop? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's interesting. I, I agree with you. But, and then – and I think I probably would have agreed tough. with you – I, I think I would have agreed with you more before I started writing because I, you know, what, what I, so here's what I, there, there's a, and that, you know, the, you sort of said that you, you know, I don't like books that you could jump into see the, into like, you could read book nine or book one and it really doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. Um, where that, yeah, where, you like that timeline, which is good too. I like that timeline. Like I, I call it sort of like the Simpsons phenomena, where in any given episode of The Simpsons, Homer could could accidentally nuke Springfield, but right. next Sunday, Springfield is just fine again, exactly. and that there's a sort of a reset at the end of every episode, and you're just like, okay, now we're back, and you know Homer as a character is essentially unchanged in 23 years. He hasn't, you know, there's no potential for learning. There's no, you know, they, you know, uh, you well, know, yeah, and they're, and in the same grade. <laughs> right. Exactly. They're, they're Maggie's sucking on that are, same pacifier. They are. They right. Maggie still only ever said one word. And as yeah. I, I stopped watching. Someone's going to call and be like, no, 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 no. And in season 29, she said, um, so. I, you know, I, I set Gibson at 28. One of the reasons I, I set him at 28 is now he's 31. We're in book three, and it's sort of three years later. And I'm yeah. enjoying, I, I, I'm enjoying aging him and that, and and watching him grow up. Uh, and it's not, you know, my book, my series is clearly not going to be as close-ended as um, you know, sort of Harry Potter, which is, which you're right, is sort of brilliant in terms of like. I'm going to tell this very long story 
and the great thing about it was that Harry Potter gets older as the books get old, go on. Like he doesn't, he's not eight years old for all seven books. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, uh, I think that that's where I like this, the open nature of this of writing a series and that challenges that is Gibson is not going to remain static and he's an immature 28. Like he, he's seen a lot, but he's also got, you know, he's got a lot of growing up to do. And it's, it's sort of, it's that, so that I'm enjoying, like I'm enjoying that. I don't have like a, an exact end point yet. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I don't envy you guys. It's not easy to do. Uh, at all to keep these things fresh when you don't really know how things are going to kind of end and how maybe things are going to get wrapped up. It is a very, very hard process that you guys have to go through, and it is so not easy. And I think that some readers take that for granted, that it is a little easy because you already kind of know a lot of things that about your characters and whatnot, but it's not easy in keeping every book a little try to make every book a little bit better than the one before trying to up it just a little bit more it's not an easy task it's not it's not easy at all <laughs> yeah and and i think that's the, the privilege of being a reader is that you, that if you're reading someone who's good it does seem easy is you know you you, you look at uh you know you look at uh harry potter and she you know there, there are some things about those books that she just does so effortlessly and, you know, you don't see, you don't, those are huge, long, complex books and you don't see her yeah. sweat. Like you, you don't see her. And I think that's one of the nice things about, re, about being readers. You get to, uh, mm-hmm. is you do get to sort of sit in the catbird seat and say, all right, entertain me. Show, show me like, you know, I don't, I don't want to think about how hard this was for you. Well, I'll tell you what, Matthew, we have kind of come up to the end of time, but I mean, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating to kind of, like you know, like I said, you know, just hear your complexity of how you're creating, you know, Gibson Vaughn and the book The Poison Feather, which is the second now in the series. The first was the short drop. Um, MatthewFitzsimmons.com is your website. That's the best place for people to find everything out about you, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then I see they can connect with you on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you have all your information right there on your website. So MatthewFitzsimmons.com and Matt. Again, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations. Good luck. Look forward to see what you got coming on in the future. And uh, we'd love to have you on and talk further. Anytime, John. Anytime you got a, a cancellation, uh, you know how to get me. I really enjoyed myself. This is great. All right. You have a good one and take it easy. You too, sir. Enjoy the movie tonight. All right. Good. Bye bye. So, again, everybody, we want to thank um, Matthew Fitzsimmons for coming on and, of course, Mark Edwards before that. Make sure that you uh, check out everything that we have here on the Suspense Radio Network uh, with all the shows that we have. You can easily go to suspensemagazine.com to check that out. That website is going to be much different coming up here in the near future, so keep that thing bookmarked. Uh, Again, we want to thank everybody. We don't know if we're going to have another show for the end of the year on Inside Edition. We are going to have one on the 29th for Beyond the Cover, but then in December, things are going to be a little sporadic. So just sign up on iTunes and get it and everything. When we we do a show, it will be right into um, into your listening device, and you'll catch everything as we do it. So until next time, everybody, again, thank you so much for joining us. Keep reading. Bye bye